nobody wants cancer, okay? Nobody. And it t it's touched everybody. There's nobody that can say that cancer hasn't touched them in some way. I mean, with that, those kinds of numbers, it is a major epidemic in the United States. We don't often talk about it that way, but it is, in fact, you know, when you're talking about one in three people getting cancer, and I've seen even higher estimates, one in two, nobody gets out. And, and cancer doesn't just affect the individual, it affects the family, it affects the community. It has such a profound effect, a ripple effect in the immediate family, in the extended family, in the community, that it just, it's tremendous. Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. Did you know that you can lower your children's risk of getting cancer later in life by getting them vaccinated against human papillomavirus, otherwise known as HPV? January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. This is just one type of cancer that could be avoided when vaccinated against HPV early in life and before exposure to cancer-causing viruses. In this episode, I am so honored to have as my podcast guest, Dr. Philip Castle, who is the director of the Division of Cancer Prevention at the National Cancer Institute. We'll have an important conversation on cancer risk reduction. Dr. Castle's passion for cancer prevention is evident in his work, and division he heads has the mission to lead rigorous, innovative research and training to reduce the risks, burdens, and consequences of cancer in order to improve the health of all people. Dr. Castle and his team are fighting cancer before it starts with prevention. There's so much to learn, and you can start making healthy choices for you and your loved ones today. I want to start with you, Phil Castle, Dr. Castle. So for our listeners who might make the same mistake that I did when I heard you referred to as Dr. Castle, and I know that you're about cancer prevention, I assumed that you were a medical doctor, maybe even an oncologist. And then I dug a little deeper and I found your work history and I thought, oh, you must be an epidemiologist. But actually, your PhD is in biophysics, which I just find fascinating. So could you tell us a little bit about the origin story of Phil Castle and how you have ended up where you are, which is the director of the Division of Cancer Prevention for the National Cancer Institute? And I think you've held that role since July of 2020. So tell us about you to start, if you would. Well, that's great, Deb. And, and I would say, you know, honestly, largely what we do, we are going out to the general population or even a high-risk population, but it's a group of people. And so it really takes a more of a mindset of a population scientist. So how did I how did I come to this? Well, it was nonlinear to be sure. Okay. So usually is, right? For all of our jobs, did we dream of these when we were children? We did not. I certainly never, even up to the point where they hired me, ever thought that I would be leading this division, which is where I got started in this field. So I went to graduate school. I thought I wanted to do biophysics, molecular biophysics, understanding structure and function of macromolecules. 
I thought that was fascinating. I still think it's fascinating. But in my first year, I did a rotation with a professor there named Richard Cohn, who had made a mid-career switch and got interested in reproductive health, particularly developing new contraceptives and methods for preventing STIs. It never even occurred to me that somebody would work on such a thing from a research perspective. So I really hit it off with him. I really liked the the focus of the lab. And so I made a first of, of what is many career switches and really said, okay, I want to work on this. This is really important. It has a public health impact. I got my PhD. I probably have never practiced truly biophysics, although it's at the end of my PhD, but really got interested in the idea of better healthcare through prevention, the idea that nobody wants to get these unintended events. In, the, in that case, it's really about giving people control of their reproduction and also preventing them from getting sexually transmitted infection. So after leaving that, I went, uh, realized I needed a little more basic science training. So I went to the NIH at, in NIDDK and did a basic science postdoc, jury and dean to look at the molecular biology of fertilization and learn, actually learn some molecular biology, you know, in the lab. But at that point, I realized that this, is, this was not where I wanted to go. I liked the idea of applied or translational research. I wanted to see an impact in my career. I totally understand the need for basic science investment. I couldn't be a stronger, you know, more of a proponent of that kind of research. But for me, the way I'm wired, I needed to do something that looked tangibly beneficial to the population in my lifetime. Okay, that's just my limitation, not everybody's. So this program called the Cancer Prevention Fellowship was available. And, and I had a friend who was at CDC who said, you know, you should really apply for this. And you could even work on this thing called HPV, which was an intersection between my interest in preventing sexually transmitted infections and reproductive health and cancer. So I applied for that. I was very honest with them. I said, I want to work on HPV. They said, great, come. Uh, it's a great program. It happens to sit in the Division of Cancer Prevention, which I'm now in charge of. And so I did that. So then the next piece of this was I had a chance to work in the lab or do epidemiology. I knew what the lab was. I knew my strengths and limitations. I said, let me try this thing called epidemiology, which I knew nothing about, literally. Okay, I knew nothing about epidemiology. I, I walked in the door. My mentor, who's still my mentor, Mark Schiffman, said, that's great. Here's an unfinished paper. Go get your database from the data managers. And off we went. And I got hooked. Instantaneously, I liked looking at patterns of disease, of the burden of HPV. And so I stayed at the NCI for, uh, I was a cancer prevention fellow and then moved into the Division of Cancer Epi, which I also have an appointment in now. Stayed there, got tenure. For uh, some personal reasons, I decided to leave the NCI in at the end of 2010 bumped around a little bit. And then uh, a series of things occurred in my life that really sort of shaped the, the future for me. One is that um, in uh, 2013, my wife was diagnosed with stage four endometrial cancer. And I spent the last three, those her last three years uh, being her primary care provider and you know taking care of her and watching this play out in kind of slow motion and, and being helpless. And at the same time, my father, who had sarcoma, 
that was progressing. And a year after that, he reached the point where there was nothing left to do. And so he he passed away less than a year after my wife. My oh, wife passed away at the age of 56. Losses. Yeah, two huge losses in your life, right up abutting against each other. So my wife passed away at the age of 56. My father at 78, but he was probably the healthiest 78-year-old you'd ever want to meet, except for cancer. So really felt that they were robbed of many years and robbed, taken away from my life. And that comes in the context of that I lost my mother at the age of 35, probably due to brain cancer, undiagnosed brain cancer. So, you know, cancers played a big role in my life and it had a huge impact. And at that time, you know, trying to rebuild my life, I went to Albert Einstein to uh, be a professor there and rebuild my research career. But then this opportunity came up for leading the Division of Cancer Prevention. And given my commitment to preventing disease, uh, wanting to prevent cancer, having it impact my own life so profoundly. But also the other thing that uh, people don't recognize, the Division of Cancer Prevention oversees our symptom science portfolio. And Hold that believe thought. me, in watching... Yeah. Yeah, I want to go into symptom science with you, but I'm going to dig into that deeper because I think that this is such a under-talked about or even discussed body of knowledge. And I know that that is one of the things that you like to emphasize. So I will let you talk about symptom management science, but I want to go back a little bit to the public health piece of this. You brought up population health, public health, Latest numbers I've got, one in three adults in the United States are diagnosed with cancer at any point in their life. That's all cancers. There are 1.9 million people with cancer in the United States right now, and 15 million people who've had cancer. I mean, this is a profound impact. You shared its impact in your own personal life, but even when we think about all of us and the people that we know, it's not this big unknown that's just out there. It's, it's affecting all of us, whether or not we have that personally. For employer dollars, one in four employer healthcare dollars goes to cancer treatment. So treatment is the other very expensive side. And then there's that whole other side, which is prevention, which is your passion. And I love one of the quotes that I came across of yours, which is, Ending cancer as we know it means preventing as many cancers as we can. Why is prevention your passion? Well, so first of all, let me build off of what you said. Nobody wants cancer, okay? Nobody. And it it's touched everybody. There's nobody that can say that cancer hasn't touched them in some way. I mean, with that, those kinds of numbers, it is a major epidemic in the United States. We don't often talk about it that way, but it is, in fact, you know, when you're talking about one in three people getting cancer, and I've seen even higher estimates, one in two, nobody gets out. And, and cancer doesn't just affect the individual, it affects the family, it affects the community. On an individual level, it's dehumanizing. It just at so many levels, but it has such a profound effect, a ripple effect in the immediate family, in the extended family, in the community, that it just, it's tremendous. So we talked about COVID and the rates of COVID, and you had said, you know, cancer comes at twice the rate, and it's coming every year, every year, at, at not really changing the rate so much, and it's not going anywhere. So then it's up to us to prevent and treat. And it's going to keep going up in terms of absolute numbers, because as the population ages, 
age is a big risk factor for cancer. So we got to get on it. You know, we need a comprehensive approach to cancer, which includes prevention, control, and treatment. And those three legs of the stool have to come together and work together seamlessly. So, you know, the thing I always like to say, Deb, is look, if I walk down the street and we interviewed the first hundred adults and we said, we asked them one simple question. Do you want your cancer prevented or treated? We know what the result would be. Everybody would raise their hand and say, I want my cancer prevented. I do not want to get cancer. Now, we're never going to prevent all cancers. It's just not possible. But we have a moral and ethical obligation to prevent as many of them as we can. Part of that three-legged stool, right? Yeah. We're going we're gonna to prevent some. We're going to control some. And the ones that we can't prevent and control, we should treat them. Yeah. Uh, but the best cancer to get is the one that you don't get because you prevented it through things like you talked about, HPV vaccinations. And for folks who don't know HPV, it's human papillomavirus. We know that if you get an HPV vaccination, you actually have a much lower risk of having genital warts, which is a sexually transmitted disease. And if you don't have HPV among, there's so many subtypes, then women don't get cervical cancer. It's really kind of an amazing thing when we learned that we could literally prevent cancer through a vaccination. Can you talk more about your work in that space? Right. So I want to reemphasize the point you made, which is that the best cancer is the cancer that never happens, right? If we don't see it, we're very happy about that. So HPV is our best chance for cancer prevention, and, and the vaccine is shown to be very, very, very effective and very safe. And HPV causes not just genital warts and not just cervical cancer, but it also causes oral pharyngeal cancer or cancer of the head and neck. It causes penile cancer, anal cancer, vulvar cancer, and vaginal cancer. So it has a profound impact. In fact, 5% of cancers globally are caused by HPV. So if we eliminate those types that cause cancer due to HPV, we would immediately take 5% of the cancers and make them go bye-bye. That's an incredible statement, yes, really. it really is. But there are other vaccines that, you know, maybe won't have as big an impact. But in fact, you know, HBV, uh, hepatitis B vaccine, not everybody in the United States is vaccinated. Obviously, it causes liver disease, of which one of those is liver cancer. So HBV has been around for three decades, and yet there are people, probably uh, underserved populations, um, populations that don't have access, who don't have HBV vaccination. So there's another cancer prevention strategy proven to be highly effective and very safe, and not everybody avails themselves of that opportunity. So I, I can't advocate more strongly that, that certainly everybody should be HPV vaccinated, HPV, especially in preteens who have not yet started having sex, because HPV is a HPV, just to be clear, is a sexually transmitted infection. And so the vaccine doesn't treat pre-existing infection and abnormalities. So you really, to get the maximum benefit to provide the greatest safety to your kids, Give it to them before they start having sex. And they're going to have sex, okay? Let's just call it for what it is, all right? I couldn't agree sex. more. Yes. I actually had a patient of mine who asked me her opinion on her daughter getting the HPV vaccine. And she said, well, you know, but we have beliefs about waiting until marriage. And I said, you know, a lot of people have those beliefs and still end up having sex before marriage. And I said, but the other piece is not all sex is consensual. 
and her eyes got really big. And who wants to think about that piece as well? But it's true. And so, yes, we all have sex. Hopefully it's consensual, but we want to prevent any outcomes that we could prevent, such as HPV infection and cancer down the road by this thing that we can get called a vaccine that is safe and proven effective. Well, the reality is, and and I would say every parent, and I've been a parent, my life partner is a parent. We all want our children to wait until they meet their significant other and start a, you know, a, a devoted relationship. But the median age of sexual initiation in the United States is 17 years old. Okay. That means a lot of people are starting before they get married. And a lot of people, that means that half of the population starts before the age of 17 or earlier. Yes. Right. That's, you That's can, a lot of you kids. can ar- make all the arguments you want, but that is the fact. Yes. The fact is that they start even before they've left home, half of them. So, so let's get them vaccinated. Let's prevent let's this. Let's protect them, okay? Yep. Rather than debating whether or not they're going to start having sex, do the right thing, protect them so that, you know, that they, they don't have to suffer the consequences of an HPV infection that doesn't go away. So I want to pivot just a little bit from prevention to screening. And there's something that you said that I thought was just so important, which is screening is not screening without the completion of care. So it's really important to screen. It's it, We will pick things up earlier. If we pick them up earlier, we can treat them more effectively, less chance that they will recur, less cost, less morbidity, less mortality associated with all of it. And yet there's still this gap in care that happens really almost from an equity standpoint, from a, ability to get screened, to be able to follow up with the completion of care if we get it. So can you give us your perspectives on screening and social justice? That's a big topic. It is. Uh, Let me speak from the heart. There are inequities all across the care continuum, whether it's prevention, primary prevention or screening, which we often refer to as secondary prevention. So I agree with you that screening without the completion of care is not, it isn't screening. And in fact, it's just a big waste of money, right? Because if you don't manage the positive screens, you get no benefit of the screening activity. But there are barriers to accessing the initial screen. There are barriers to getting follow-up care. Some of them have to do with inequities in our healthcare system. Some of them have to do with very simple things like living miles and miles away, geographical barriers to getting that follow-up care. And we're going to have to tackle that as, you know, there's an important segment of the population that don't live in cities and getting them care is really important. And let me give you an example. Again, coming back to what I know best, was, which is HPV. So we screen people for cervical cancer now with HPV, but whether they get HPV or PAP, uh, it, the, the problem remains. Positives need a colposcopy. Well, getting colposcopic services in the most rural places is quite challenging. And the doctors who are there don't do colpo uh, regularly enough to really be expert about it. So we have to think about some new systems to try to reach everybody equally in the, in the country and recognize that one size is not going to fit all. So one of the big initiatives that we are doing at the Division of Cancer Prevention at the NCI is developing screening technologies that can go out from the clinic and into the homes or into the community center, like self-collection and HPV testing for cervical cancer screening. We're working on strategies for HCV, hepatitis C virus screening, which everybody should get once in their lifetime, 
can we deliver it to the home as a self-test? So one of the silver linings to the COVID pandemic, and there are not many, but one of them is that there was a technological revolution in diagnostics to bring things like the antigen test to your home that you can do by yourself. And they are amazingly good. And so how do we leverage that technology to allow people to participate in preventive services, including cancer screening at the comfort of their own home, which we hope will make these preventive services more available to them, to everybody. You know, it feels like we're coming full circle with a lot of these things where, again, it used to be that physicians, that's where they were. That's where they treated. They went to the home. They made uh, house calls and seeing, again, medicine doesn't just happen in an exam room. It happens all around us. And to your point, a lot more of it is happening at home very appropriately, being able to spread that technology. You mentioned something around screening, the access to the follow-ups, and and what do we do with this information? And I want to use that as an opportunity to talk about multi-cancer early detection tests. So a lot of conversation happening around, hey, you can just get your blood test and we will find circulating proteins for 50 different cancers that you may or may not develop, right? That may or may not become important to you. But we can tell you that you you might be developing these 50 different cancers with a simple blood test. What are we to think about these, Phil? Let me just say at a high level, there's a lot of hope and a lot of hype, okay? These are unproven tests. And what I mean by unproven is that they may detect some cancers, but we don't know if they actually benefit anyone, right? So That is so we can detect. You can detect cancer, but not benefit anybody by that knowledge. Right. So let's say you detect a cancer but you end up dying at the same age, then you've not benefited at all, right? You may have found it earlier, but it may not be the most aggressive or it may be aggressive and the treatment, it didn't make any difference in the course of that cancer and taking someone's life. We have to evaluate these and that's just the positive part, right? So we have to, in any new intervention, particularly in prevention where we are talking about, you know, population level intervention, right? You're not standing next to me with cancer, you're healthy and we're trying to keep you healthy. It's a different equation. It's a different scenario. So there's the benefits, which is really to prevent cancer death. And then there are the harms. Okay. So what are some of those harms that we have not quantified? Hey, and before you go so there, one is, even with the preventing cancer deaths, I think is such a hard thing to show. It's hard to show what didn't happen, right? Right. So that's always been our struggle in the division and for the Institute, which is we all recognize that we want our cancers prevented, but there's no prevention champion because there's nothing that happened. If we do our job well, there's nothing to see. Right. And so it's it's the absence of events. Yes. Right. But we're used to we, we tend to react to things happening. We tend to be reactive. And what we're really saying is we're going to be proactive and you're not going to see anything. But this is a good idea. That's a hard sell to everybody. It's a really hard sell. No, cancer prevention, blood pressure control, take a pill every day so you don't have that heart attack or stroke. In all of those preventive worlds, I think it's really hard to create buy-in for the thing that doesn't happen. But when we put it, like you said, side by side with, and what, what there's the benefits that are hard to see, and then there's the harms. Right. So the harms, first of all, if you get a positive test, the positive test does not mean you have cancer. 
it means that you have to go through a series of diagnostic steps to determine if you do have cancer. So it's really important to recognize that the screening tests, these multi-cancer detection tests, don't mean you have cancer. All they are is a signal for maybe you do. It turns out that two-thirds of the people with a positive test don't have cancer. Okay, that means that you are now on this road of care, which will lead to more invasive procedures. It could be imaging. It could be a biopsy. Even if you get a positive test, then there's a probability for where that cancer is. You may not find it. It might be there. You may not find it or it might not be there at all. So that's one level of impact. So again, we haven't proven benefit, and now there are these harms uh, potentially associated, and we haven't quantified them. So I'm not saying what they are or what they aren't. We have, we have to do our due diligence as public health advocates and scientists. So there's that. There's the possibility that people are falsely reassured of a negative test. So you get a negative test, you may say, heck, I got this fancy new multi-cancer detection test. It's, it was negative. I don't need to do my colorectal cancer screening. I don't need to do my pap. I don't need to do my mammography. I'm a high risk for prostate cancer. I need, don't need to do my PSA. All those things could happen because of these claims, because of not understanding. So part of screening isn't just finding the people who are at risk for disease. It's providing this reassurance that you, to the extent we can, reassure you against cancer. Again, there's no perfect test here, but we want to be able to say you're at lower risk and you need less. But if they give up their standard of care screening, that could have a, from a population standpoint, actually a negative effect. We could result in more cancers because they weren't doing their standard of care screening. All right. So those are some of those important impacts. The other issue, because these tests are not reimbursed at the moment, is that that there's a real even when they are reimbursed, there's a possibility if they work that you have inequities about access to those tests. And to your earlier point, it isn't just the test. There's all this downstream stuff and you have to be able to get that. You have to be insured. And even if you're insured, there are significant co-pays right that are associated to that. So people who have less resources may get the test, get all the anxiety of being positive, but not be able to afford either time-wise or otherwise to get their downstream care. And so what good does that mean? It just means you've spent money on something that has not benefited and may even harm that person. I mean, the anxiety of a positive screening test is not inconsequential. It's not. And then the other impact is onto the healthcare delivery system itself. You know what? I got this this multi-cancer detection test. It says I might be at risk. Who do I talk it over with? With the primary care docs that are already so busy? With a genetic counselor? Because I'm going to combine that with 23andMe. You know, all these things have their impacts. And then the tests themselves, the follow-up, without understanding quite yet what those outcomes are, to your point, and whether we've really done a good thing by doing the screening. Right. The primary care doc, who obviously is the front line and it has the best intentions, may not know the pathway to care. It may just genuinely not know what to do with that result. So it's really important to work out all of these pieces. Again, screening isn't just the test. It's, it encompasses the completion of care. And so we have to work all of that. Nor are we clear about the best diagnostic follow-up for many of these cancers because we've never had a screening test for them. Yes, I agree with that as well. Even when we have screening tests, sometimes it's not clear. So how does this get sorted out and what kind of time frame? It's going to take some time. I wish that we could snap our fingers and get the answers 
but to do a rigorous evaluation of these technologies. And keep in mind, well, I'll come back to this. It isn't one technology. There are many, and there are first generation, second generation. And I think the second generation will be better than the first generation. That's inherently what happens in medicine. So we need to do a rigorous trial. We need to measure those benefits, measure those harms, measure the logistical issues that are entangled in delivering this test. Remember, we're all learning in this process because we're used to a single test for a single cancer, a single organ. We've never really dealt with a intervention that's talking about multiple cancers. And so there's a learning process for all of us, the scientists, as well as the participants in the trial, as well as the primary care docs. And so we're going to be looking at all of that, not just the outcomes like, you know, did they get cancer or not? Did they die from cancer or not? What does this mean for the healthcare system? How do we make sure that there's a seamless transition from the testing to the care? And so this is going to be a learning process for everybody. And we all need to work together, right? I know everybody wants this to be available tomorrow. I do too. I mean, if somebody came along and said, listen, I can detect 50 cancers, I'd be jumping on that bandwagon too if I didn't know what I know, which is that it's not just enough to detect cancers. You actually have to save lives with that technology. So we're going to have to do our due diligence. It's probably going to take us, before we get any signal of of whether these work or not, it's probably going to take five to seven years. It's probably going to take a decade to really understand their impact. There are no shortcuts to doing good biomedical research. I wish there were, but they're not. And, you know, we need the companies to make the technologies. I can't make the technologies, but they, you know, they have a vested interest in this. And that's okay. I accept that. I have to stand on the other side and balance that against, you know, from a public health perspective, does this actually benefit you, the participant, you, the the healthy consumer? Does this actually give you what you think it's, you know, what you're hoping for? And what are those consequences that the unintended consequences of such a test? And that applies to really everything that we think about, not just cancer, when it comes to our health and our interventions. There's things that we know to do that doesn't matter what the outcome of the test is. The advice is the same. And we'll get to that maybe at the very end. But I want to talk about something that I haven't really seen a lot of other folks talking about, which is symptom science. We talked about people with a diagnosis of cancer that's active, people who are living with a past diagnosis of cancer. And through that whole process, people experience their symptoms and reactions to cancer interventions and treatment very differently. And I know that this is a research space that you have a great interest in. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, it it starts with my wife. and And so it's very personal that I watched her go through a series of symptoms and and sort of outcomes related to her care that really felt like trial and error, that it wasn't hardcore evidence-based medicine. And I will say that at a high level, we're now talking about things like precision oncology, where we take what we know about you and, and that guides the care. Why would we do something different for the symptoms that are related to that cancer or cancer treatment? It makes no sense. So while we have this big revolution in precision medicine in general across the medical field, here's this one piece. And as you pointed out, there are a lot of people living with cancer and we're, you know, we're just pulling things off the shelf and say, try this and get back to me in a week. So why is that bad? Well, one is that it affects the quality of life of our cancer survivors. Okay. And again, there are a lot of them. 
Second, you know, cancer survivors obviously have a risk of getting that cancer back. They're also one of the demographics that is at highest risk of new cancers. So we, you know, providing better care for them is really important. Their ability to deal with that those cancers has to do with their healthiness, right? But it's more than just quality of life. So what I like to say is that we need to keep people healthy and happy, keep their clinical performance level high so that they can get to the next treatment and the next treatment. If their clinical performance falls off, doctors won't treat them anymore. They're basically sent home to die, okay? That's the reality. So if we keep their clinical performance high because we keep them healthy, because we manage their symptoms, including, you know, making sure that they get enough caloric intake, you know, that we manage their nausea and all of that, they have a chance to get to second and third line uh, cancer treatments and even cancer treatments that aren't available today, but will be tomorrow if we can keep them alive long enough. So the cancer on call, you know, the, the treatment space is moving very quickly. So there's even more motivation to really keep people healthy and happy and at, at a high quality of life because oncology is making so much progress. So they can make it to that next therapy that isn't available today, but will be tomorrow. You know, during the time that I've been practicing medicine to see some cancers become almost faced as a chronic disease where we haven't Rather eradicated than death it. Yes. Where we know we're not going to cure it. We haven't gotten you to remission or maybe we have, but we know it's a matter of time before it comes back. It's really been encouraging to see people raise their children, participate in their careers, go forward in their lives in such a way that we couldn't have imagined. And I love what you're doing in that whole research arm of symptom control, because it's true. If you are not basically fit cancer, it can affect all of us or all of us is in all of our bodies, all of our organs, or it can be just that specific thing that's that the rest of us is well. And I think dividing those two things up and how do I keep the host well, as it were, while we try to eradicate this thing that's happening, this cancer, is such a pivotal change in thinking about cancer survivorship and keeping people going in a very healthy way, just like we do for other chronic diseases that we take care of as well. Let me make a couple of comments about that. So there's the cancer and then there's the whole being, right? And we have to take care of the whole being. You are a whole being. We need to take care of you, not just manage the cancer. So it's really important to think about that gestalt, the whole being, how we're going to take care of them. But I also want to come back. Yes, we can control more of those cancers. We can prevent them. You know, you can live longer, but we still want to prevent them. Okay, because you're still, you know, if you get cancer and you're a survivor, you're still living with a chronic disease. It still impacts the quality of your life, no matter how well we manage that cancer. And so, again, our front line, the first line of defense against cancer is don't get it. And we're working on new ways to prevent cancer. But I encourage everybody listening to this podcast to do everything with the currently available methods for preventing cancer because nobody wants to get cancer. The final point is, to bring it back to an earlier comment, this is why basic science is so important, okay? So we don't really understand symptoms from a biological perspective. If we did, we could then tailor our interventions, that precision medicine approach to really mitigate those symptoms or even prevent those symptoms. We know they're gonna come, we're gonna take this and you're not gonna get them, right? So that's why NCI has a big investment in basic science, and it needs to. 
in addition to translating that into novel ways to prevent, manage, and treat cancer. It's really, really important that we get a fundamental understanding. And there's a tremendous amount of variability in what people experience in terms of those symptoms. So it's not trivial, but it's a worthwhile investment given the number of people who live with cancer and have to deal with those symptoms every day. I just think it's so amazing that you said we don't really understand what underlies symptoms sometimes from a biological standpoint. We have interventions. We think that we've, we've got things that we can do. But to your point, if you can't even predict who's going to have a strong reaction, say nausea, you can't have those medicines on board to prevent it. And so understanding those from a very basic science way will allow us to intervene in such a way that maybe people don't even have to fear the treatment of science. You know, I've, I've had patients say, you know what, if I have it, I don't want to diagnose it because I'm not going to treat it because I'm not going to go through that through that being the treatment, right? Thinking that in a way the treatment is worse than the disease. And so to your point of if we can manage those symptoms, we give people hope because now they can undergo cancer treatment therapies. They know that they're not going to lose their quality of life while they do it because their symptoms are improved. We need to, we need to change the equation. We need to change the, the conversation about symptoms. I do want to qualify my statement. The the division, uh, we have three divisions that do work on this, DCCPS, DCP, which is my division, and DCB, and they are supporting research in these areas. I'm not saying that we're not doing anything, but we need to drastically expand our understandings of symptoms. And then what comes from that is developing new drugs or repurposing old drugs and using them in the people that we know based on their biology and other factors are going to get the greatest benefit. And so it really comes back to this benefit to harms ratio that we we always harp on in our divisions. Like, how do you maximize the benefits? How do you minimize the side effects of anything? It's it's such a foundational conversation to be having really about everything that we do, especially when it comes to our own health and, and the investment that we put in it. So Phil, if there was some bit of wisdom that you could impart to the general public, the general population about cancer prevention that maybe we, we know we don't know enough or we don't know at all, what would that nugget be? That's a tough question. I, I, it's not so much that you don't know it, but I think we need to bring it to a, a sort of a higher level of awareness, which is everybody's vulnerable. Just because you're not seeing cancer today, remember we talked about the challenges of communicating about prevention and that every one of us is at risk of cancer. And, and so taking that proactive, you know, I'm going to do what I can to reduce my risk is part of the equation to, I mean, at the end of the day, we'd like to make cancer a rare thing, not a, a pandemic that it is or an epidemic that it is. And so we all have to come together. But I think because it's not in our daily awareness because we don't have it, it's not like a toothache, right, or a fever where we say, okay, there's something I need to do to manage this. It's cooking. Your risk is sort of cooking. It's behind the scenes. You may or may not get cancer. We don't right now. We can't point to someone and say, you're going to get cancer. You're not, right? So understanding that we do these things because there's value to what we do for the population, right, that we can't individually identify who's going to get cancer. But if we all do our part in preventing cancer, we can, again, achieve that vision that President Biden laid out. So it isn't that you don't know it. It's just it's not necessarily in our we're so busy. We get up in the morning. We're on the computer. We're doing this. We're commuting to work. We're trying to get food on the table for our kids. The plumbing is, you know, needs fixing, whatever it is. 
there's their da- our day-to-day lives that are so complicated and varied and and full, and yet we need to do our part uh, to protect ourselves and protect our family. And I do mean protect our family from the consequences of an adult getting cancer or a child getting cancer, for that matter. So don't skip your colonoscopy, right? Don't you know? Don't put it off. I recognize that. COVID put some barriers in place, but we're coming out of that era and we need to get back to doing what we need to do to mitigate those risks of cancer and and to live a long and healthy life. I love what you said. We are all vulnerable. That's a conversation I've had in the exam room so many times about women talking about mammograms and, well, I don't have a family history. And I'm like, but you have breasts. And so just by virtue of having that organ, you are vulnerable. I would also say I mean most cancers most cancers happen in the average people. Right. It's not yes, absolutely if you have a family history, if you have BRCA, you're at a much higher risk, but that's a small segment of the population. Even like our smoking, you know, our guidelines for low dose spiral CT, right? So we target the highest risk for low dose spiral CT for lung cancer screening, but only a third of the cancers happen in that group. So that's why not smoking is really important. It isn't just because we can screen you, but a lot of those cancers don't happen in the people we target for lung cancer screening. Absolutely. And to that, I would add, let's talk about it with each other. The strangest pap smear screening that I ever did as a reason, it was a great reason though. I said, so what brings you in for your physical today? Oh, my boyfriend sent me. What? You know what? He actually lost a partner to cervical cancer. And on one of our first dates, he said, are you up to date on your pap smear? And I just thought, what an amazing thing this man has done by continuing to talk about something that affected his life so profoundly, but also was important to him going forward. He didn't know about it. Because until he, that. Loves the per- he, he loves his girlfriend, his partner, and wants her to be around as long as possible. That's right. And it was really profound that that was the trigger for her to come in. And we can do that for each other as well. So love this. So there's a lot of conversation around Biden's moonshot for cancer. How is this going to be affecting you and your work and your research? Well, that's a policy statement. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very careful here and, and not say too much. I know that, uh, uh, that the NCI leadership is working very closely with the Office of Science and Technology Policy to formulate a plan and to implement it. I expect, I, I don't want to predict, my, my guess, let's say, is that we'll see that, that put into play in 2024. As the Biden White House has said, the immediate goal of the moonshot is to put a greater emphasis on prevention and screening, which of course I'm incredibly excited about. And we think that we will get some support for that to do the evaluation, the multi-cancer detection. But, you know, they have to make the decision about how they're going to what resources and how they're going to allocate them. And that's up to them, up to my boss's bosses. But I want to highlight and applaud President Biden for his visionary statement about reducing the burden of cancer to reduce mortality by 50 percent in the next 25 years. I strongly support his vision. I think it is doable, but we all have to come together and we have to get, you know, and and even at the individual level, right, the consumer level, do your preventive services, get your follow-up care. Like, that's how you can contribute. I know that sounds funny. It sounds ironic, right? Like, all I'm doing is taking care of myself, but you're part of those statistics. So if you prevent cancer, 
Yeah, you are part of the solution. So, you know, do what you can to reduce your cancer risk. That's a big deal. And, you know, it's not just a big deal for you. It's a big deal for your family, for your kids. You know, we do not want any kids to grow up without their mom and, or their father. Believe me, that's not a hap- that's not happy talk. That's not what we want. So everybody has a, a role to play in this to the, you know, the manager of the local grocery store, to the plumber, to, you know, do your part, prevent cancer, get your cancer treated, do that, those pieces, and we will together achieve President Biden's vision. I love that. And I think that is really the perfect place to end, Phil. I have so enjoyed talking with you. I feel lucky that I have gotten to meet you. And can I just say thank you for the work that you are doing? It is so important. And and again, prevention is is not everything, but it really should be the main thing. So thank you for your work, for the work that you do, for the work that you oversee, and for spreading the message. I think it's really important that everyone listening understand that they do have a part in this. Prevention is important. Lifestyle changes are important. And then in the greater scheme of things, how can we have people actually breathe better air so that they decrease their risk? eat healthier food so they reduce their risk. There's a part for, I think, bigger conversations when it comes to the health of everyone in our communities and our society as well. Anything that you wish I would have asked you, Phil, that I haven't? No, I mean, I would have loved to have spent another two hours talking about all these and rambling all over the place. I I just want to say that, you know, coming back to the air thing, we're starting a, a bunch of initiatives to address the needs of service members who may have been exposed to burn pit and other deployment exposures. And we are taking that very, very seriously and very excited to do something to those who have given so much to the country. But I want to say that I'm deeply honored to give this podcast. I'm deeply honored to serve the American population and people, trying to help them prevent their cancer, to represent the a really a tremendous group of people at the Division of Cancer Prevention at the National and at the National Cancer Institute. I, every day I wake up and I pinch that I get to do this job. Like I get to do the job I love, and I hopefully, if I'm uh, really lucky and really blessed, I get to help a whole bunch of people. They may not know me. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But you know, the mission is correct, and I, I'm on it. I'm working tirelessly. And we have a great team that's working on this to really improve and help you prevent your cancer, control it, and manage it, right, from a symptom standpoint. So, again, a tremendous honor for me to be in this role. And thank you, everybody, for your support. All right. Well, listen, thanks again, Phil. Appreciate you so much. And I hope that you have a wonderful rest of the week and that you have some time off this weekend. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Fuse with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have, and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals. Music